Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. You're listening to the Theological Seminar of the Air, going into its 19th broadcast now, dealing with the great doctrines of the Word of God. As you know, the Scriptures were not written primarily to make people feel good, and of course there's nothing in the Scripture about getting everybody together under the one world government of the Antichrist, except in a negative sense. The purpose for which the Scripture was written was to teach sound doctrine. Now, we realize that all Scripture is profitable not only for doctrine, but for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And the many things in the Bible there teach us valuable spiritual lessons that help us in our devotions. And, of course, when we read the Bible, this is God speaking to us. However, all Scripture was given inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and all Scripture was given inspiration of God and was profitable, first of all, for doctrine. Until a man gets his doctrine straight, his devotional life and his spiritual life don't amount to a great deal, because after all, sound doctrine is the laying out of truth in the proper order to teach what God said the way he said it and meant to say it the way he said it in his word. Because of this, on these broadcasts, we never bother to alter or change one word in the King James text. We go by the authorized version given by the authority of God, not by King James, uh, I have an original edition here with me in the house, and it is not authorized by King James at all, nor does the term authorized occur anywhere on it. The book won its title, The Authorized Version, by virtue of its power and its authority, which was recognized by the body of Christ in the Philadelphia church period, the greatest period of evangelism and missionary work the church has ever known. As a matter of fact, to be explicitly scriptural about it and not... Uh, uh, scientifically brainwashed or theologically hogwashed about it. The only church that kept the Word of God was the Philadelphia church in Revelation chapter 3. So we're not going to waste a lot of rubbish talking about original manuscripts and verbally inspired, plenary inspired something others that nobody has and nobody's seen and nobody can find. When we are told the church that kept his Word was not the apostolic church, it was the church of the open door, 1500 to... 1900. And this is the church we're after, and this is the church whose Bible we use, the church of the Protestant Reformation. Now, in trying to find out what God said exactly, that is, in the search for absolute truth, we were warned that in order to find it, we'd have to hunt for it like a man would hunt for silver and gold, and dig for it like hid treasure, and realizing, of course, the average American, uh, that's the furthest thing from his mind, we would certainly expect a great deal of opposition, a great deal of criticism for broadcasts of this nature in a country that doesn't care anything about absolute truth at all, but rather political and social expediency. The National Education of uh, Association of Educators, the NEA and the uh, H-E-N-W, is teaching the dogma of uh, scientific relativism. That is, man is God, and it's relative depends upon how you look at it. If you can't prove it scientifically, it isn't true anyway. This pagan superstition was quite popular with the Greeks of 400 B.C. before any revelation of the New Testament was given. And so those of us who have access to advanced information that scientists don't have access to, namely the New Testament, are not to be bothered in the least by all this superstitious dog row put out by the barbarian imagination of unsaved men. We're here dealing with absolute truth and trying to find out what the Bible says about itself in regards to the matters of absolute revealed truth. We are taking for granted, first of all, that God is, and we talked about this in our lessons on the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, theology proper, on our first six broadcasts, 
Then we've taken for granted that if there's any God there, he's going to make an effort to communicate himself to his creation. This brings us to the problem of God appearing on this earth as a man. And this, of course, uh, is the absolute revelation given by God in opposition to the counterfeits, gods and chariots, gold of the god, god from outer space, astronauts, twilight ufologists, and people from Saturn, and Lemurians, and Deiros messing around the bottom of the ocean, and a bunch of depraved scientists trying to contact life in outer space and blowing $25 billion a year tax money every year when the life has already appeared and gone back. And so in these lessons, we're talking about Christology, the doctrines that deal with the coming to this earth of God in the flesh manifesting himself as a Savior and as a man tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. In our last couple of lessons, we discussed the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, and we went into considerable detail about the prophecies concerning the life of Christ, which exhibit a mathematical phenomenon that is not producible or uh, reproducible. It's not available in any mathematic bo mathematics book known to Einstein or anybody else. The truth of the matter is the Bible presents the mathematical phenomena of 500 prophecies that are prophesied about one man before he's born, and 48 of them already came to pass when he showed up here the first time, and the statistical probability of 48 prophecies coming to pass on one man, which were prophesied from 400 to 1,000 years before the man was born, is about 1 out of uh, 10 to the 157th power, and as you know, there are not that many electrons in the universe. So the man who rejects the Bible on the grounds of science is a little bit cuckoo. And the man who rejects the Bible as an authoritative absolute book of absolute truth on the grounds that it is legend and myth is about half crazy. Uh, the, by the statistical proof of mathematics themselves, the Bible itself exhibits, exhibits a phenomenal uh, piece of work in the mathematical field that the mathematicians themselves cannot reproduce. So why should any of us be particularly bothered about the logical positivists and the logical empiricists and the followers of Einstein who didn't know what they were going about half the time? Why should we waste our time listening to some nut who thinks because he's had 20 years of education above a college level that he's intelligent? Perish the thought, brother. We've got a book here that exhibits a phenomenon he can't reproduce and the men that taught him can't reproduce and which cannot be reproduced in any scripture book in the world outside of the Holy Scriptures and which the Sutras and Vedas and Shastas and Puranas and Bhagavad and Tripitaka and the writings of Mohammed and Confucius can't even approximate. <clears throat> Those of you who read your Bible know that Joseph is a type of Christ in 152 particulars. There isn't any other book in the world that exhibits that phenomena. And it is a scientific mathematical phenomena that no scientific textbook in the world can even attempt. There's nobody living or dead, no scientist living or dead, who ever wrote a textbook on physics or ever found out any discovery in the material world or the world of energy that ever could even attempt to start to try such a thing. But the Bible does it and pulls it off without a hitch. So if the Bible says one thing and the scholars and the scientists say another, we know where the educated men are than the men who wrote the Bible, and the rest can wait or try to catch up. 
Now, in this broadcast, we're talking about the arguments against the deity of Christ. There are 21, to be brief about it, and there are 21 arguments presented by infidels, skeptics, atheists, agnostics, communists, and socialists to try to classify Jesus Christ as a religious teacher like Muhammad or Buddha or Mao Zedong or Lao Zedong or Zoroaster or some other teacher who taught various things in his life which didn't amount to anything one way or another. By that we mean this, that none of these teachers dared make any historical guesses on history, and Christ made so many of them that 500 of them haven't come to pass yet, and there are 20 and 30 of them being fulfilled in this century. After all, a man who gets up and begins to talk about religion and God and spirit things, if he doesn't have contact with God, he can't know what God knows. And if there's any God up there at all, he certainly knows the future. And this is why we often have uh, pseudo-prophets like Casey and uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare and Gene Dixon and Mother Shipton and Nostradamus uh, popping up, who make little these little half-hearted attempts by the newspapers to figure out something's going to happen politically. Now, the Bible hazards 500 detailed prophecies about something that hasn't happened yet and it will happen in the next 30 years. This makes the Bible the only scientific textbook in print. The first argument presented by modern scientists and assorted clowns is that Christ is not God because he had flesh and bones, and God, being a spirit, has neither flesh nor bones. Notice Christ says in Luke 24, 39, A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have, while John 4, 24 said, God is a spirit. Now, Jesus Christ, as a man, had both flesh and bones, but as God, he was a spirit, the Holy Spirit incarnate. This objection rises from the problem of the dual nature of the Savior. In order for the invisible God to become visible, he must become flesh and bones. So we have Jesus Christ as a dual personality. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And yet at the same time, 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. So the argument that he could not have been of God on these grounds is futile, because in order to save a man, he'd have to be God, but in order to save a man, he would have to be a man. So we have God coming as a man with two natures, as the old priest used to say, very God of very God, and very man of very man. The second objection is Christ could not have been God, because Christ had a beginning, and God had no beginning. Notice Psalm 90, verse 2, and John 8, verse 42. But Jesus Christ, as a man, had to have a beginning, to be conceived by the Holy Ghost, and at the same time, Jesus, as God, is about beginning or end, according to John uh, 118, Colossians 117, and Isaiah 9:6. Again, we're dealing with the dual natures. Christ as a member of the Godhead, the eternal Son, part of the Godhead, was from eternity, and so he's called the everlasting Father, as one with the Father and co-equal with the Father. But to become a man, he had to empty himself, Philippians chapter 2, that is, humble himself, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humble himself, and being found in fashion as a man. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
So we see that although the man Christ Jesus had a beginning, this day have I begotten me. Christ, as the Word, the second person the Godhead, had no beginning, but was eternally coexistent with the Father. Number three. Some people say Christ could not be God because he was created and God had no beginning. And uh, Revelation 3.14 is used by the followers of Pastor Russell and Judd Rusford to prove that Jesus Christ was the first God that God created. But, of course, that isn't true at all. The Lord Jesus Christ was the beginning of everything that God created. The genitive often gives unsaved people a terrible time. Revelation 3.14 is interpreted in Revelation in Colossians 1.15. And when the Bible speaks about the beginning of the creation of God, the word God there is the subject of the genitive, not the object. Uh, unsaved people who are unlearned and unstable often rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. You say, well, Brother Ruffman, I have to be a, an expert in grammar then to get my doctrine right. No, sir, you wouldn't. All you had to do was read Colossians chapter 1, and you would have gotten Revelation 3.14 right. But unsaved, Christ-rejecting, Bible-rejecting people who profess to believe the Bible, and people who try to attack the deity of Christ and make him a begotten God, cannot read their Bibles. So when they get to Revelation 3.14, they make Jesus Christ the beginning of the creation of God, making God the object of the act of creation, which, of course, is not. You notice when the Bible speaks about the fear of God, God's an object in that sentence. But, brother, we talk about the love of God. We're not only talking about God loving us, we're talking about God loving him. Old John says, if any man love the world, the love of God, the love of the Father, is not in him. He doesn't love God. Sometimes God's the object of the of, sometimes the subject. The truth of God can be the truth that God revealed, in which God is the subject, or the truth about God, in which God is the object. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the creation that God made, God is the subject. The Lord Jesus Christ was the beginning of everything that God did. And that simple twist in English, of course, has put many a man into hell who thought he was a no-heller and tried to get rid of hell. We have a national broadcaster on national television uh, sending out a magazine all over the United States, and he's one of the richest men in the world because he's convincing people there isn't any hell, not a literal burning hell. And he picked up this nonsense from Revelation chapter 3.14 by making Jesus Christ the first God that God created. Some more blasphemous nonsense, a lot of it around these days. The fourth reason why Christ could not have been God, according to some people, is because Hosea 11.9 says that God is not a man, as also we find in Numbers 23. Ezekiel 28.2 says that man is not God. But Hosea does not say that God could not assume a human form of body and flesh, if he so desired, which he so desired. And then again, although man is not God, Ezekiel 28, 2, nothing is too hard for God, Jeremiah 32, 17. He could be manifest in the flesh if he desired, and he desired. In the book of Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, that a body thou hast prepared me. The second person, the Godhead, had a body prepared for him, and became manifest in this on this earth, as the Son of God. Out of him the God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. <clears throat> the fifth objection to the deity of Christ is that Christ is not God, because he called God his Father, in Matthew 27, 46, and John 20, verse 17. Well, Jesus as a human person called God his Father, but God in Hebrews 1, verse 8, calls Jesus God. 
Now, you see how folks get so messed up in the Trinity. And you see why we spent a good bit of time in previous broadcasts in discussing theology proper. We discussed the matter of the Trinity and the Godhead and spent a great deal of time giving you all the verses that dealt with the subject. As I said before, for many of you people who have not heard the previous broadcast, you probably should write in and get a hold of these broadcasts, which are all reproduced where anybody can get a duplicate tape. Uh, the argument of the Trinity is so perennial among unsaved people who talk about be be being Bible believers and lost elders and lost teachers that many of them, after receiving the entire teaching on it and receiving all the Scripture on it, still wander around in a drunken daze pretending they haven't heard anything or hadn't seen anything. In our lesson on the Trinity, we gave you verses that prove the Trinity acted in unity, in creation, in the incarnation, in redemption, in salvation, in communion, in prayer, in glory, in regeneration. And we listed the Trinity and the attributes of God the Father, which are also synonymous with God the Son, His eternity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, holiness, truth, benevolence, and communion. Uh, these broadcasts took two solid broadcasts, coming to nearly an hour, 56 minutes of solid biblical scriptural teaching. Therefore, to say the Trinity is a Romish invention or a Baptist doctrine is nonsense. You can obtain the uh, broadcast of the Trinity by writing Box 7135, Pensacola, Florida. Box 7135, Pensacola, Florida. And we learn from this that Jesus as a human person is human nature, the Son of Man, called God his Father. But in Hebrews 1.8, God himself calls his Son Jesus God. And that's why you'll find Hebrews 1.8 changed in nearly every new Bible in the market, including those Bibles recommended by so-called fundamentalists. The Christian universities in America today and the Christian colleges are going into total apostasy, and they are recommending Bibles that attack the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ under the lame alibi that you can find the deity represented in some other passage. Now, I don't know whether you've ever studied these matters carefully or not, but what's going on today in Christian schools and Christian colleges and Bible institutes is that the Bible institutes and colleges are recommending two versions of the Bible so that where these two versions contradict, the school of the university can set itself up as the final authority, the arbitrator or the arbiter between the two Bibles. To do this, the Christian colleges in America today, I mean all of them, the major ones, whether they profess anything or not, what they're doing are recommending the ASB and the new ASB, which have some verses sustaining the deity of Christ and some verses attacking the deity of Christ. Now, the lame alibi given by these hypocritical institutions is that since you can find the fundamentals of the doctrine of the faith somewhere in these Bibles, they're just as good as the King James. And anybody with any sense at all knows perfectly well you can find the fundamentals of the faith in any Bible. As a matter of fact, you can find them in a gospel tract. So what? This doesn't mean that a gospel tract is the Bible. Just because you can find the fundamental of the faith in some passage in a version, that doesn't mean it's a Bible. And the same Bibles attack the deity of Christ in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. They are chameleons. They're bats. They fly with the fowls and run with the rats. Number six, 
People say Christ could not be God because the Father sent him to earth. John 8:42. But the Father sending the Son to earth does not lessen his position as being Almighty God. In the first place, Jesus volunteered to come, Hebrews chapter 10. And in the second place, Christ manifests his deity in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And this doesn't lessen his position as being Almighty God, according to Galatians 4, verse 4, and 1 Timothy 1, 15. As a matter of fact, on this earth, Jesus Christ himself manifested the attributes of deity. And we talked about this in our previous lessons when we talked about Christ's creative power, John 1, 1 to 3, his power over the elements, Luke 8, 24, Mark 4, 39, and mostly all, the fact that on this earth as a man, he received worship due only to God, John 9, 38, while telling the devil that nobody should worship anybody but God, Luke 4, 8. The fact that Jesus Christ would let men bow down and worship him and accept their worship after telling the devil, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve, shows that Jesus Christ on this earth, although he may have been sent to this earth, he still was Almighty God manifest in the flesh. The seventh objection found to Christ's deity is that Christ could not be God because he appeared with flesh, 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Since Jesus is flesh, bones, and blood, he is merely a man and no more. But that won't work. God simply assumed flesh, bones, and blood merely for the purpose of the Incarnation. As God, he is eternal spirit to be our Redeemer. He had to be partaker of our humanity, according to Hebrews chapter 2, or he couldn't save us. If he was just God, how could he save us? We're not gods. We're sinners. The eighth objection is Christ could not be God because God is his head, according to 1 Corinthians 11.3. But in a trinity, it is necessary that one be the chairman, but that doesn't mean that he is greater than the other two. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, but for administrative purposes, the Father acts as the executive administrator. We talked about this considerably when we discussed uh, the matter of the Trinity and our lessons on that subject. The ninth objection is Christ could not be God because he is called man in John 8:40 and 1 Timothy 2:5. But Jesus was both true God and true man in one person without any intermingling of the two natures. His very name indicates this, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us, Emmanuel. That is, he had to be all man in order to suffer and bleed and die and go through what a man goes through, and he had to be all God to make a perfect atonement for sin. He is the God-man. He is the fabulous Superman like no Superman you ever heard of. The next reason, the tenth reason given why Christ could not be God, is because he is the Son of God, just as we Christians may be called the sons of God. But by conversion we become a Son of God. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, John 3.16, which is a unique and special position. God's Son is equal to the Father, Philippians 2.6, while the saint only becomes an heir with Christ as a joint heir. In plain words, there can be sons of God. In the Old Testament, they're angels. There can be a corporate nation as a son of God, the nation of Israel, is Exodus chapter 4. There can be sons of God in the New Testament by a new birth. For as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
But this in no way abrogates the official and unique position which is held by the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it is said, He is the only begotten Son of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten. You will also find that verse messed with in the new Bibles, especially the RSV, and you will find that the word begotten has been taken out of the passage. He is the only begotten Son of God. Sometimes they take out the word only. The most usual deletion is begotten. He is the only man who was ever born of the Holy Spirit physically on this earth. Now, when you're born again, you're born again by the Spirit of God and become the Son of God. But you must remember when you're born again, nothing happened to your flesh. Your flesh still goes to a hole in the ground and rots. Christ said, That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And the unique position that Jesus Christ holds as the Son of God is no man ever born before or since was ever conceived by the Holy Ghost. Now, when you were born again, you were born again by the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost gave you a new birth and baptized you in the body of Christ and placed you into the spiritual body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that was your spirit that was born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There has never been a time in your life or my life when your flesh was conceived by the Holy Ghost. That is a unique operation, a special position reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the blessed second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. Your flesh, my friend, will never be born again, quote, until the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture, when you will be conformed to his image according to your predestination, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. In the meantime, although you're a son of God spiritually, physically, you're headed for a hole in the ground. And when you die, you'll rot and corrupt. It is a marvel past understanding, but well worth noticing, that when the Lord Jesus Christ's body lay in the tomb, Simon Peter says, Acts 2.27, Acts 2.31, His soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. He was the only man whose flesh was born of the Holy Spirit. And this puts him in a unique and special position that nobody has ever been in before or since. And to classify Jesus Christ as the Son of God like us. And to say everybody has a spark of divinity in them and can become a child of God like him. Or to say he merely helped us realize our sonship by demonstrating it is the height of absurdity and the most obscene, blasphemous nonsense that has ever been invented by the barbarian imagination of the unsaved sinner. Jesus Christ was uniquely the only begotten Son of God. On our next broadcast, we'll continue on the 21 objections raised to the deity of Christ and show how the Bible answered these arguments against his deity. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.